know. Wore you out. <laughs> so part of what we get to do every Sunday morning is spend some time in prayer. And normally we focus on upcoming events or ministries or missions. Today we're going to spend some time in prayer for local churches in the Northland. Um, here at LCF, we spend a lot of time and thought and prayer about what we do here, and that's true not just for us, but for churches all across the city. Um, and that's the beauty of the church, is that we get to co-labor together, we get to work together. So today I want to pray that the Lord would work powerfully in and through churches in the Northland. So if you'll pray with me as I read Ephesians 4 um, for churches in the Northland. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Lord, we pray this over our community. Would the gospel go forth in the Northland as a result of all of the churches co-laboring for you, Lord, because of the faithfulness of churches in our community, would people know you? Would heaven be more crowded? Um, Lord, I pray that you would unite us, that you would allow us to love and serve our community. Lord, would you get all of the glory? In your name I pray, amen. Amen. Thanks, Erica. If you have a Bible, you want to open it up to Luke chapter 24. It's good to see you all again after not being here last week. I'm glad to be back and to be able to open God's word with you. Um, I'm excited. We're starting in Luke chapter 24. It's the final chapter in the gospel of Luke. We've been plugging away through Luke's gospel for over 80 weeks now. We finally made it to the last chapter. And this morning, we're going to look at the first 12 verses in Luke chapter 24, which is the resurrection account. Actually, all of Luke 24 is about the resurrection, but we're going to start with that this morning. I don't know that I've ever worked with this section of scripture in any of the gospels, not on Easter Sunday, so I'm excited to, to do this over the next three weeks outside the context of, of Easter. I almost walked up here and just started with, he is risen. But it's August, and I just would have gotten blank stares back at me. So, he is risen. He is risen risen indeed. And that is good news all year long, not just on one weekend in the spring. And so, uh, I'm excited to open this up with you. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into Luke 24. God, thank you for this morning, for the chance to gather together and to worship. God, thank you for this family of believers, but like Erica Uh, said and prayed, God, thank you that this local congregation is just a small piece of a larger body knit together and united by the truth of the gospel, the glory of Jesus' death and resurrection on behalf of his people. God, we praise that we're just one piece of what it is that you're doing, certainly here in the Northland, but also across this country. And in fulfillment of your word, what you're doing globally 
among all the nations to the ends of the earth. God, I pray this morning as we look into your word, uh, that your spirit would take the truth of your word, bring it to life in front of our hearts and minds, help it to be something, help this truth of the resurrection be something that seeps all the way down into the core of who we are and bleeds its way out of us in every aspect of life. God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I think I've mentioned this before, um, kind of about myself. I'm someone who is forward thinking, which means that most of the time, by the time I get into any particular thing or any particular event, that thing is already like done for me and I'm moving on, I'm thinking about the next one. So I spent all of high school and I just couldn't wait to get to college. I moved in and then it was like, when's this over? And I'm looking forward to the next thing. And I do that in pretty much all of my life to a fault. And so the saying, stop and smell the roses, like that's actually a meaningful thing to me. Pause and actually enjoy the thing that you're a part of right now. At one point, past Tim, look forward to this. So present Tim needs to stop worrying about future Tim and just stop and enjoy the thing. Take stock of what's happening around you. Stop and smell the roses. Last week, Adam finished Luke 23, and that's the account of Jesus' death on the cross. He reminded us that Jesus truly died, and because Jesus truly died, sinful people can truly be saved. This week, at the start of Luke 24, we're going to see that Jesus truly resurrected. He truly got up. He truly did not stay dead. Jesus truly defeated death. He truly triumphed on his people's behalf. He truly lives right now. And what I want to invite you into this morning is a lifelong process of stopping to peek in the tomb. Not one time, not on one Sunday a year. I want to invite you to stop and look into that open, empty tomb every day, every moment for the whole of your life, because it is that empty tomb that makes all the difference. Amen? Amen. Before we jump into this passage, let me sort of frame Luke 24 for you. If you've got it open on a device or there in front of you in a hard copy, we're going to take Luke 24 in three weeks. This week, we're going to work with verses 1 to 12. It's the account of a group of women who have been following Jesus throughout his ministry, going to the tomb early in the morning and seeing that it is open and empty. And it's actually the fact that Jesus makes no appearance in these first 12 verses that is noteworthy within the passage. Oftentimes when we think about the resurrection, we immediately jump to Jesus alive and walking around. But where the account starts is that This group of women goes to this tomb and then later Peter runs there and Jesus is not present. And that's what alerts them to the fact that something amazing has taken place. Starting in verse 13 down to verse 35, you get the account of the first people who like lay eyes on the resurrected Jesus. They have an interaction with him. He explains scripture to them. Those are the first people who with their eyes, though they don't realize it right away, are looking at resurrected, living, breathing Jesus. And then from verses 36 to 52, we see Jesus resurrected, authoritative, and then ascended, interacting with the disciples. So we're gonna take this in three weeks, starting this week with the first 12 verses. So if you've got a Bible there, you wanna follow along with me. This is what 
Luke 24, verses 1 through 12 says. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying it is necessary for the Son of Man to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and rise on the third day? And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and uh, to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went away amazed at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to start with just sort of framing that passage. There are some aspects of this account that I think in our typical Easter Sunday celebrations we kind of miss, so I want to pull those to the surface. Then I want to take the reality of the resurrection and I want to address two very specific groups of people. I want to address those either among us or that you might be in relationship and regular conversation with who would say that they are skeptical about Christianity. Now, they might be skeptical about Jesus, or they might be skeptical about Christianity as like a construct in a religion. I think the resurrection has something powerful to say to that group. And then I want to take the truth of this passage and apply it to those who have been walking with Jesus or who are walking with Jesus now. If you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, there are some powerful reminders that come from the truth of the resurrection that I want to bring out for us. And this is where I want to land this morning. That Jesus really rose from the dead. And that reality has real ramifications. Real ramifications for those who are skeptical. Real ramifications for those who are walking with Jesus. We've been using this You Are Here chart throughout the Last week of Jesus' life, it's been up there for what feels like a month now. Well, way over a month, Tim. It's been up there for what feels like three months now. As we've worked our way through Jesus' last week of life, we've made it to the very end there. The passage tells us that it's after the Sabbath, the first day of the week. So Saturday's the Sabbath. Those who were with Joseph of Arimathea, when they took Jesus' body and began to prepare him for burial, they rest on Saturday. That was their Sabbath. And then the first day of the week is Sunday. And we're told it's very early in the morning. So I mentioned a number of weeks ago that a typical Roman workday began at 6 a.m. So I don't think that would qualify as very early. It has to be even earlier than that. That this group of women gathers their spices and they head off to this tomb where Jesus has been buried. And they go there in order to finish the customary rituals that they would perform over a loved one's dead body. And now there's something interesting here if you sort of stop to think about the moment. There's an incredible measure of faith in this act, and yet on the flip side, there's also an act of faithlessness. So on the one hand, and I never really considered this until this week, this group of women saw Jesus's body placed inside this tomb, stone rolled in front of it. 
A day passes. They gather up their spices and they head off back to the tomb. What do they think they're going to do with the spices? Lay them outside the tomb? There's a giant stone there. So whatever it is that they think they're going to do, they think they're going to have some access to Jesus's body that makes no logical sense. How are they going to get to him and finish preparing his body for burial? I'm not 100% sure. But however they think they're going to do that, they obviously believe we're going to be able to get behind this stone and access Jesus's body. There's some measure of faith there that something is going to happen. And yet the other side of that coin is they think there's going to be a body. They've been told more than once that Jesus is going to rise from the dead on the third day. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, here we are on the third day. And they're headed off to the tomb thinking that there's going to be a body there. So on the one hand, we're going to do something with these spices. On the other hand, there's going to be a body to do something to. There's this measure of faith and this measure of either forgetfulness or faithlessness, depending on how you would want to frame that. My first observation here is that that is the very nature of human life following Jesus. Measures of faith mixed with measures of uncertainty or forgetfulness or even at times faithlessness. That the life of following Jesus is one that says, I believe who this man says that he was, who scripture says that he was. I believe the events surrounding his death and his resurrection. I have faith in that. And yet mixed into that in a very human fleshly sort of way, the other side of the exact same coin is, I believe help my unbelief. Fill in the blank thing happens in life, various situations that we encounter. And while we definitely believe and are trying to cling to the gospel, there's the portion of us that has difficulty mustering faith in the promises or the certainties of who God is and what that means for our lives. And it's all just sort of mixed and smashed together into one ball of humanity as we try to follow Jesus. These women get there. The stone is moved. We're told they go inside the tomb. Verse 12 tells us that all that's laying there are the clothes or the cloths that Jesus was wrapped in when he was buried. And verse 4 says they're perplexed. That's an understandable uh, emotion to experience when they walk into this tomb. This man that they love, that they've come to prepare, his body's not there. They're confused. Then two men appear, two angels. Luke tips us off to that because two men appear in dazzling clothes. The other gospel writers tell us that it's two angels that appear. And the women go from confused to terrified because terrified is the standard response to seeing an angel in all of scripture, Old Testament or New Testament. You don't see angels and start singing along with their harp or whatever you picture in your mind. You see angels in scripture and you are immediately terrified by what you're encountering. Their holiness makes it so. So in their confused terror, verses five, six, and seven, these women get a mild rebuke from the angels. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Ask the men. He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying it is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, 
be crucified and rise on the third day. That's the rebuke. You know that he's not supposed to be here. You know that he's not supposed to be dead. All the way back in Galilee, if you want to jot down a note, the angels are referencing Luke 9, verses 21 and 22. The first time Jesus says he's going to die, be buried, rise on the third day. That's before he sets his face toward Jerusalem or determines to journey toward Jerusalem. The angels are saying, he told you way back then that he wasn't staying inside this tomb. Why are you looking for a living man in a place where you would search for dead men? Takes a reminder, but then they get it. Verse eight, and they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Second observation this morning. This is the way that the life of following Jesus is supposed to work. We are supposed to interpret our circumstances through God's word, through the gospel. They approach an empty tomb. They're confused. They get a reminder about what Jesus has said. Now what they're experiencing makes sense because Jesus' words have informed their circumstances. God has given us his word that we might rightly understand who he is who we are, and how we're to think about all matters in all situations in life. Far too often, we interpret God's word through our circumstances. We come to scripture and we say, here's what my life says that those words must mean. That's backwards. Instead, we're supposed to interpret our circumstances through God's word. That's one of the key reasons to immerse yourself in scripture. We cannot interpret the circumstances, events, and issues of our lives through the lens of scripture if we're not familiar with what scripture says. The longer you spend day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, immersing yourself in scripture the more it becomes your natural instinct to think about life through its truths rather than to think about its truths through your life. At first, when we begin reading scripture, we cannot help but read the Bible and say, what does my life tell me about these things that I'm reading? But over time, we learn to say, what do these things that I'm reading tell me about my life? Ultimately, what we need is something that draws us up out of ourselves and into the deepest, truest, most beautiful reality of life in this world. And that deepest, truest, most beautiful reality of life is God. He is the greatest thing. And so the best way to approach scripture is to first ask, what do these things that I'm reading tell me about the glory of God and the wonder of Jesus? And then ask ourselves, what does that mean for me and how does it inform my life? Once these women remember, they go back and tell the disciples exactly what's happened, that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is not there, that he's risen like he said that he would. But look at verse 11. These words seemed like nonsense to them. They did not believe the women. That word nonsense is literally like rubbish, trash, seemed like babbling to them. But the women are persistent. 
In verse 9, they reported or announced all these things to the 11. In verse 10, they were telling the apostles these things. They're insisting that this is what's happened. And so finally, in verse 12, Peter gets up and he goes to see for himself. And when he arrives, he stoops down to look into that tomb. And just as the women said, there's no body. That tomb is open and empty. And all we're told is that Peter is amazed at what has happened. He's in wonder. He's in awe that Jesus has done what he said he would do. He's resurrected. He's risen from the grave. Jesus really rose from the dead, and that reality has real ramifications. This isn't just a story from a couple thousand years ago. This is an event that has real ramifications today. And to the skeptical among us, whether here in our sanctuary this morning, listening or watching online, or those that you interact with on a regular basis who may be skeptical about the claims of Christianity, I want to offer this. The resurrection is the hinge point of the gospel and all of human history. This is the thing that matters. There's an extended conversation about the the reality of resurrection in the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul, in that letter, chapter 15, he gives a long defense of the reality of resurrection. And he says this in the middle. He says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. The resurrection is the hinge point. It's the crux. In the letter of Romans, in chapter 4, Paul is explaining how it is that righteousness could be credited to an individual. He says it happens on the basis of faith, God's grace working through our faith. He uses Abraham as the example, and at the end of that explanation, he says this, it, righteousness, will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. That's the crux, Paul says. It's the resurrection. It's one thing to believe that there was a man named Jesus who lived at this time who died on a cross. But a lot of men lived at this time and died. A few men lived at this time and died on a cross. The real question is, did this particular man who lived at this time and died on a cross not stay dead? That's the actual question. Oftentimes our skepticism as it relates to Christianity comes from secondary or tertiary matters of outworkings or implications. It comes from moral positions and those types of things. When the real question is, did Jesus or did he not get up out of the grave? That's the question. There have been untold numbers of meaningful events in human history. The fall of Rome, the Renaissance in Europe, the discovery of the Americas, the creation of vaccines, the discovery of DNA and all that's done for humanity. On a global scale, the defeat of Hitler and the end of World War II and all the hostilities that came with that. The ending of the apartheid in South Africa. Technological changes. I mean, the Industrial Revolution totally changed the world. We've gone from traveling 
on the backs of animals, to traveling in ships, to traveling on trains, to having our own cars, to being able to get in metal tubes that fly and can put you anywhere in the world in a matter of hours. Our ability to communicate has gone from smoke signals to verbal language to written language to printing presses to computers to now you literally hold access to all the information in the world in your pocket. Those are hugely meaningful events. And there have been meaningful people throughout human history. Political figures, Julius Caesar, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, People like Karl Marx, Winston Churchill, King Arthur, King Tut, Cleopatra, kings and rulers throughout history in different places. Military figures like Alexander the Great or Napoleon Bonaparte, Attila the Hun or here in America, Ulysses S. Grant or Generals Patton and MacArthur. Significant figures within the arts and sciences, authors like Shakespeare, Homer, Aristotle, Charles Dickens, Jane Austen. Scientists like Isaac Newton, Thomas Edison, those within the fine arts like Mozart, Bach, Beethoven, Van Gogh, Da Vinci, social figures, Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, the leader of the women's suffrage movement here in America, Elizabeth Stanton, those who worked to oppose chattel slavery like William Wilberforce or Frederick Douglass, pop culture figures from all eras and all cultures. I say all of that to say this, all of those people in all of those events pale in comparison to this man, Jesus, and this event, the resurrection. And the reason I say that is because I do not need to square myself with any of those other events or any of those other people. It's good to know about them. We can learn a lot from history. It's good to understand the implications of those events and those individuals, be they positive or negative, and their lasting effects today. But I don't have to come to terms personally and eternally with what I believe about those people or those events. It's this event. To borrow from C.S. Lewis, either Jesus was a liar and everything he said was totally fake, he was a lunatic and he actually believed the stuff that he said but none of it was true, there was something loose in his head, or this stuff happened and he's Lord. This is the hinge point of the whole deal. Who is this man, Jesus, and did the things written about him actually happen? If you're skeptical about Christianity, and that skepticism arrives from the implications, interpretations, or outworkings of secondary or even tertiary matters, I want to implore you this morning, address the central thing. Who is this man, Jesus? The stuff that scripture says about him, did it happen or did it not? Because if it didn't, none of the secondary stuff matters anyway, so you need not quibble about it. If Jesus isn't who he said he is, you don't need to worry about anything that the rest of Scripture says. Start at the core. Square yourself with the central element. If Jesus truly died and truly rose, then every human being has to come to terms with what that means for them, for history, and for the world. If none of that happened, then write them off and move along with your life. But unlike any of those other events or in from within history, you cannot simply allow yourself to be ambivalent about who Jesus is. There's too much at stake. I would offer you a couple thoughts right out of this passage as to the beginning of that pursuit. Is this man who he said he is or is he not? There are some sort of subtle 
evidences for the reality of this account baked into the gospel narratives. The first one is this. Women were the first one to see it. Yes. If you were going to make up a story about Jesus and his resurrection, and you wanted to give it real weight at this time and in this society, you would have put the words and the report of the resurrection in the mouth of influential men. Influential religious leaders, influential political leaders. You even just could have used the soldiers who were standing guard. You would not have put it into the mouths of women. Why? They generally were not trusted. Women could not even be witnesses in a court proceeding. You had to use men. So when someone in the first century in this context is hearing this story and it's women who go back and report, they would have said, pause. Don't do that. Give it to me from Peter. Give it to me from John or James. Give it to me from Caiaphas, the high priest. Don't give it, don't do this with women. And then there's the fact that if you wanted to take this account and make it really powerful, you would have the disciples immediately believe and begin immediately proclaiming the truth of the gospel and what has just happened. Instead, the women go back and these men are like, it's rubbish. This could not have happened. You're lying. I don't believe you. I'm gonna get up and go there and look myself. And then after I've seen that the tomb is empty and I've interacted with resurrected Jesus, I'm gonna go into hiding. Like, this is not the way you would draw this story up. And so somebody reading this at this time or hearing this account would have all sorts of questions. But then you flip into the book of Acts. And the first sermon recorded in Acts chapter 2, after the coming of the, the Holy Spirit, Peter stands up in Jerusalem and he looks at this gathered group of people and he says, you're witnesses to the fact that this happened. You know it. Right here in your city, in the early part of Acts, the resurrection is not something debated about. It's you saw it. Everyone in this city understood that it happened. 500 people saw Jesus. Everyone was talking about it. That's a settled fact. Let me tell you what it means. At the end of the book of Acts, Paul has taken the gospel all around the Mediterranean. He ends up in a court proceeding in front of Caesar. And in Acts 26, you know what Paul says? I'm on trial because of the hope of the resurrection. I'm not on trial because I was whipping people into a frenzy. I'm not on trial because we were undermining civil authority. I'm not on trial because I was leading sedition or some sort of rebellion. I'm on trial because I believe a man got up out of the grave. That's the thing for Paul. So the question today is, did it happen or did it not? Far too often, we make Christianity about positions or moral issues or culture wars or issues of should I or shouldn't I do this or that, but brothers and sisters, the question is about a person, Jesus. Jesus said that this was what he was going to do. It's his most audacious claim. And if the stone was really rolled aside and there really was no body, I think we can trust the rest of what he has to say and then set about the process of figuring out what that means in terms of how we live and how we think. But if the stone wasn't rolled aside and he didn't rise from the grave, there's no reason to worry about the rest of it. 
And if you have some of these skeptical kinds of questions, or you interact with someone who does, I want to offer you some resources that can help you start with the resurrection and with this man, Jesus, and go from there. There are two books by a man named Lee Strobel. One is called The Case for Christ. That's his most popular work. But he's got a second one that's called The Case for the Resurrection. It's all about did this or did this not happen? If you've got sort of questions that exist on some of the secondary matters, there's a book by Tim Keller called The Reason for God that takes specific questions that often arise from those who are skeptical and answers them in light of both scripture but also like logic and reason. There are three books by a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin. One is called Confronting Christianity. She does a similar thing to Tim Keller in that one. One is called Confronting Christmas that's all about the virgin birth. Can we trust that this actually happened? And one is coming out later uh, this year. It's called Confronting Easter, all about the resurrection. You could also go back to C.S. Lewis and his classic Mere Christianity, where he deals with some of these issues. Or if none of that is compelling, I would encourage you to go all the way back to some ancient resources outside of the Bible that talk about Jesus and the resurrection as if it's settled fact. Sources from Clement of Rome, Polycarp, Tacitus, Josephus, Ignatius, and Justin Martyr. I cannot encourage you enough. Stoop down, look in the tomb, and figure out if that body's there or if it's not. Like Peter, you need to go and see for yourself. Someone else's declaration of belief in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus does nothing for your soul. Every human has to reckon with this man on their own. Jesus really rose from the dead. And that reality has real ramifications. It's the hinge point of everything else. Now for those of you who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, I want to offer you some rhythms. Rhythms to help keep ourselves grounded in the reality of the resurrection. I want to offer four of them. The first one is this. Look into the tomb and and just simply remember the reality of the resurrection. This is ultimately what happens for Mary, Joanna, and other Mary, right? They look into the tomb, they get a nudge from the angel's rebuke, and they remember that this is exactly what Jesus said. Our flesh, our sin, the reality of life in a broken world makes it so that there is no moment in the human experience where a reminder of the glory and the power of the resurrection isn't helpful. There's nothing you could experience in life where injecting the truth of the resurrection isn't beneficial for your soul. When things are going really well, everything's just kind of humming along. You're stringing together days and days or weeks and weeks of sort of easy and carefree living. We need to remember the truth of the resurrection and the beauty of the gospel. Why? Because when life is just sort of bopping along, we lose sight of what really matters. It's easy to get sort of pulled into just being absorbed in life in suburban America, to just be sort of relaxing into and enjoying the comforts and the the sort of monetary aspects of life in a place like this as if those are what is most important and most true. And we need the reminder of the resurrection to sort of jolt us back into reality that there's something more important than our comfort. There's something more important than the ease of our life. There's something more important than our fleeting moments of happiness. The resurrection helps to do that. When we're in moments of intense grief, 
We need to remember the truth of the resurrection and the beauty of the gospel. Why? Because when grief is heavy, it's easy to lose hope. And nothing restores hope like the reminder that because Jesus got up, the pain of this world is not the end. The difficulty and the tears and the heaviness of life in a broken world is not all that there is. Brothers and sisters, he got up out of the grave, right? That act is the down payment on the fact that he's coming back again. And when he comes back again, all the tears that you wept in your grief, he is going to wipe from your eyes and everything broken by sin, he's going to make right again. And so in the middle of your grief and in the middle of your challenges and in the middle of your tears, the resurrection reminds us that this is not it. The bleakness and the darkness of life in this world is fading and passing. It's got a time limit on it. There's an end to it. And when darkness settles in and the clouds kind of just like hover over life for a season, we need to stop and peek in that tomb and get a reminder that at one point, Jesus is coming back and he's gonna start flicking clouds away. Gone. Over. And everything bad and broken is gonna be undone and made right and whole. And you're going to spend eternity in a place where darkness can no longer touch you. And so despite the fact that grief can be very real and very heavy and difficulty is a real thing in this life, stop what you're doing, stoop down, look in the tomb and be reminded that this is not it. This is not where it ends. That darkness does not get the last word. When life's confusing or overwhelming or you're just sort of trudging through the everyday mundanity of life in a broken world, we need to remember the truth of the resurrection and the beauty of the gospel. Why? Because when we're overwhelmed with options or circumstances or we're just sort of trying to plow through the daily grind of life in a tiring and difficult season, it can feel like this is all there is. Well, I had kids. Now I just try to get them to eat vegetables every day and then I die. <laughs> this is it. That's not it. There's meaning to all of that. All of the just sort of daily mind-numbing realities of life in this world have deep and true meaning because there is a God behind all of them who is in control, who has his hands wrapped around all of it and he's moving it toward his glorious purposes and the resurrection reminds us that when it's time to bring those purposes to fruition, God will have no problem doing it. Like you're slogging through life and it's just like, when is this over? Like when do the alarms stop and when does work stop? And you're getting the forward thinking sorts of things that can be overwhelming for us. Stop and peek into the tomb. Get a reminder that there's more to life than the daily grind of life. And we're stuck in the middle of our own sin or in the swirling, broken, misery-making consequences of someone else's sin, we need to remember the truth of the resurrection and the beauty of the gospel. Why? Because we need the reminder that Jesus has triumphed, can triumph, and will triumph over sin fully and finally. Like we need the reminder that this brokenness in the flesh that I have and my propensity towards sin, I don't have to be slave to that anymore. He rose up from the grave and those chains can be released. 
I can be set free from that. And even as I wrestle through my sin and my brokenness, one day it's all going away. And when the consequences of someone else's brokenness intrude on my life, and it hurts, and it's frustrating, and it's painful, it's helpful to remember that the consequences of brokenness intruded upon Jesus' life, sent him to the cross, where he actually died, was actually buried, and then where he actually rose up and trampled on that sin while he waltzed out of the grave. Like, we need that reminder. And the hopelessness that often settles in of our own sin or when the consequences of someone else's sin intrude painfully into our lives. Look into the tomb and remember the reality of the resurrection, but don't stop there. Look into the tomb and rejoice in the reality of the resurrection. Our remembering ought to lead us to rejoicing. There's more to life than the stuff of this world. More to life than the comforts our money can buy us. More to life than fleeting happiness. The resurrection makes it so. In the middle of loss, we can rejoice because there's more to life than life. The resurrection makes it so. We can rejoice that Jesus is living and embodied and interceding at the right hand of God, that he hears our prayers and that he is responsive. The resurrection makes it so. The brokenness of this world will not ultimately win. It will not ultimately exist. We can rejoice because the resurrection makes that so. And so as you stop and you peek into the tomb and you get your reminders of the beauty and the power of the resurrection, rejoice. We're people of hope because this thing is true. Like we're people who are able to rejoice in all circumstances, like Paul says in Philippians, because Jesus rose up from the grave, because he lives. So look into the tomb and remember, look into the tomb and rejoice. Third, look into the tomb and report the reality of the resurrection. Our proclamations of the gospel are built on this reality. The good news is only good news if Jesus not only truly died, but he truly rose. You are truly saved because the son truly died and truly triumphed over sin out of the grave. And what we declare to the world is not a dusty set of dry, cold intellectual doctrines. It's not a set of moral propositions. It's not primarily a religious organization. What we hold out to the world is a person a living, breathing, saving, triumphing, overcoming, compassionate, gracious, merciful, loving, caring, righteous, glorious person who is alive. That's what we have to hold out to the world. These women look in the tomb. They get the reminder from the angel that he's not here, he is risen. And they go back and they start reporting, not all the implications of the gospel. They start reporting the person. He's not there. He got up. He's alive. He's risen. In the sort of aftermath of the last couple of years, as things have slowed down and there's been a chance to catch our breath, and I've done some reflecting over the pandemic and social realities that exist in our world and the political turmoil of the last few years, the one thing I keep coming back to is that the thing that's most grievous out of all of that is that people have associated Christianity with all sorts of things that aren't this person. The people have associated Christianity with do we or do we not wear masks? What do we think about the vaccine? What is the way that we're supposed to vote? How are we supposed to handle this particular issue as it exists in our society? Man, this is about a person. 
Like if the world is gonna think we're weird or we're backward or we're kind of strange, let it be because they know that I think a man died and then stood up and walked out of the grave. Like if they're gonna think I'm crazy, let them think I'm crazy because I believe in a resurrected individual. And I've wrapped my life up in that reality. That Jesus died and he got up. And as we make presentations of the gospel, as we report the truth of the gospel, make sure it's all about a person. If what we have to report to the world is primarily understood as a list of things we're against, as a set of textbook doctrines, or even as a framework of morality, we're not offering people the hope of the gospel. We're offering them shackles of legalism and saying, Hey, if you can uphold all of this, then you can be saved. No, we're holding out a person. He died, he was buried, he rose, and because of that, you can be saved. Then we'll figure out the rest of it. But that's our proclamation. It's in a person. It's the beauty of the person of Jesus that's compelling to the world. It's the good news of the resurrection that's hope for the weary. Peek into that tomb, remember, rejoice, and then report that person. He's what matters. And last... Look into the tomb and rely upon the reality of the resurrection. This isn't just an Easter Sunday only kind of thing. When we talk about being devoted followers of Jesus Christ who are gospel-centered, we're talking about people who take the whole of their lives and they stake it on this thing. The good news that Jesus died and rose. We're talking about being people who spend the whole of their lives staring into that empty tomb and being marveled by it who understand that the Savior lives and that because he lives, he hears our prayers and our pleas, so we pray. And because he lives, he's empowering us to live faithful lives, so we submit ourselves to scripture. Because he lives, he's present in our pain and we have hope. Because he lives, he's active and working to draw people to himself, so we proclaim him. Because he truly died and truly rose, we can truly be saved. It's not something that we just believe in our minds. It's something that ought to drip its way down into every crack, crevice, and corner of our lives. And as it reaches down into the very depths of who we are, it becomes the basis of who we are. Last week when I wasn't here, I was in Iceland with a group of guys from the church here and we had a unique opportunity because a volcano happened to be erupting on the island when we were there and so we hiked into this volcano and we got there kind of late in the evening but time is this weird deal over there because it's light until like midnight and when we got there we could sort of see everything that was happening on the surface with this volcano but we stayed long enough the sun finally dipped down behind these hills And what looked like this solid sort of sheet of dry lava, it became apparent that there were cracks all across this thing. And you could see liquid magma sort of shining out from these cracks. And the whole surface of the place was actually sort of undulating because it's actually liquid underneath there. So we're... We hang out there. We're all marveled by it. We took a bunch of pictures. We hiked our way out. And I've been thinking about this ever since. Because this is a decent picture of what it is to be gospel-centered. On the surface, you look like any other human being. But shining out of every pore of your being is the beauty of the gospel. And the good news of that gospel is built on the resurrection. 
If Jesus just died and stayed died, then to echo from Paul, you are still in your sins and ought to be pitied more than all men. But if he rose from the dead, everything changes. And at our core, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are people who say he did raise from the dead. And that reality finds its way into every piece of who we are, forms the very people that we are, and then bursts its way outward into the world so that what they see shining out of followers of Jesus is not a list of do's and don'ts. They see a person, Jesus, crucified, died, buried, but he is risen. Amen? It's, it's August. I'm going to say it again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And brothers and sisters, that's as good of news on August 14th as it was in April when we celebrated Easter. And it will be just as good of news tomorrow when you wake up. And the thing that we need to do as followers of Jesus is stop and smell the tomb. (laughs) Like stop and peek in there. He's not there. And because of that, we can rejoice we report about him, and we rely upon him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand up and sing together. In 1 Corinthians 15 earlier, I want to read to you how that chapter starts. There's only 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians. The last one is given toward kind of Paul's travel plans and, and some other things. And so he ends the whole letter with the reality of the resurrection. He says this, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures." He works his way through the rest of sort of a defense of the resurrection, and he ends with this. And this is like the last thing that rings in your ears in 1 Corinthians. Therefore, because of the resurrection, therefore, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Why? Because Jesus got up out of the grave. That's why. He is risen, yes? He is risen indeed, amen. It has been uh, just a blessing to get to worship with you all this morning. Thanks for being here, we love you. Uh, Today is the second Sunday, and so that means there are members of our leadership team who are available if you wanna talk to someone on our leadership team, ask any questions, you can do that right out the middle doors. Otherwise, thanks for being here, we love you, be blessed. We'll see you again soon.